This week on Big Apple Buckets, we look back at some happy days as a Knicks fan. The 1998-1999 season that saw the New York Knicks get all the way to the NBA Finals. We reminisce on that magical season with the guy who covered that team, the New York Post, Mike Vaccaro. Also, we chat with a member of the squad and a friend of the program. He was on that backcourt, and he's coming back to the show, Chris Childs. All that and more next on Big Apple Buckets with the New York Post. Welcome to Big Apple Buckets, our New York Knicks podcast with the New York Post. I'm your host, Kazim Famuide, a.k.a. Kaz. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Kazim, that's K-A-Z-E-E-M. New episodes drop each and every Tuesday, so hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google. They're all good places, but whatever you do, make sure you leave us a five-star and a nice review because, you know, we like compliments over here. Our guest today is the New York Post's own Mike Vaccaro, as well as New York Knicks point guard from that legendary 1998-1999 team, Chris Childs, drops by the pod. So let's take a little stroll down memory lane. Yeah, so this is a special episode of Big Apple Buckets, obviously with everything going on in the world. There's no new games to cover. There's no new games to cover anywhere, whether it's the Knicks, the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the sports world has come to a screeching halt. So we thought it would be a good idea to take a look back on some good days as a Knicks fan. And that is the 1998-1999 New York Knicks. That is the last team in the Garden that made it to the NBA Finals after a lockout shortened 50-game season. It's kind of eerie that, you know, hopefully if all this goes well and things get back to any semblance of normalcy, this season will be somewhat of a shortened season, whether they finish in June, July, August. So, you know, there will be another sort of asterisk NBA championship in uh, 2020. But just like with the New York Knicks uh, eventually going up against the San Antonio Spurs, this Knicks team was very memorable. I mean, you got to remember that starting lineup that had, you know, Latrell Sprewell, who just came off suspension to join the New York Knicks, Allen Houston, who was on his way to becoming a max player in the NBA, Kurt Thomas, Larry Johnson, LJ, the legendary four-point play. You got Patrick Ewing, the seasoned warrior on that team, and Marcus Camby, the young gun that helped lead that team in the middle when Patrick Ewing couldn't really hold up anymore. You know, he'd been in the league for a long time at this point. And you got to remember, the league was very different this year as well. Uh, Michael Jordan had just called it quits for the final time at the Chicago Bull. So the Eastern Conference was up for grabs that year for the first time in nearly a decade. It was an incredible season, man. I remember the Knicks not necessarily being world beaters either, which makes it this team a lot more fun to root for and to watch. Uh, they were eighth seed. And remember, back in the day, uh, these playoffs were best of five series. So that eighth seed in the East, they got in by the skin of their teeth, only going 27 and 23 that year. They beat the Miami Heat three to one in the first round. And lots of folks, especially myself, remember that iconic jump shot floater in the lane that you know we'll talk to Chris Childs later says reminded him of the Kawhi Leonard bounce for Toronto against the Philadelphia 76ers and uh you know I'll never forget it man Allen Houston running full court and that fist pump in the American Airlines Center in Miami 
was uh, one of the more iconic moments in New York Knicks history. And uh, it was absolutely one of those things that made you think that this team was a team of destiny. You know, they went through the they, they went to take on the Atlanta Hawks right after them, swept them four straight and then uh, took on the very hated Indiana Pacers team highlighted by that incredible iconic larry johnson four-point play that sent the garden into an absolute frenzy man and we talk about nick's memories jake you know those two shots in that playoff run is some of the greatest memories in nick's history man wouldn't you agree well for us too, our childhood i know we were talking before you were what 12 or 13 that season yeah i had to be around like 12 or 13 years old uh i just i think i just started seventh grade or something i was still in middle school yes i was eight so you know i could barely do my abcs and count to 10 at that time but that was the first year i was really a fan i think i remember i was listening in the radio with my dad to the Allen Houston shot and he was going crazy we went crazy and I just loved Allen Houston like I interviewed Mike Piazza yesterday and that for me was my childhood hero but Allen Houston was also and Sprewell were also heroes of mine because they had so many fun memories Houston had the purest jump shot Sprewell was just exciting like he could light up the gym when he had that that infamous dunk against the Bulls so there's so many memories with just those two not even including Patrick Ewing who was later on in his career but Patrick was also great and a leader and you know we had have childs on because we remember the occasional three-pointer the childs would make that was clutch but it was really Spreewell and Houston man that were like really a big part of both of our childhoods those were Knicks teams that no one will ever forget and it's hard to forget them when you're thinking about what the garbage product we're watching right now so yeah man those were crazy series unbelievable rivalries and I do think the Pacers really got the Knicks gassed up just tired man I think that long grinding series Reggie Miller six games tight games I think it just got them tired out and then they went up against a Spurs team that you would talk about would go on a dynasty so uh, just a fun team in the beginning of my sports fandom 98-99 was literally the first years I liked sports so I got introduced to sports cast with the Knicks going to the finals the Mets would go to the World Series the Yankees who I liked first which I, I hate to even say that because it hurts my skin now oh it's okay yeah. we're all Yankees I, I liked them in 98 and Jeter there. and you know they won a World Series the Giants went to the Super Bowl so that was was not only a prominent time for the Knicks, New York was thriving at that time, and there was no better place to be than on the New York sports scene when we're talking about the end of the 90s and the beginning of 2000. Yeah, man, there's a reason why they call New York City the Mecca, and times like that is, uh, you know, proof positive that when sports are popping in New York City, it's good for sports everywhere, you know? Um, you mentioned that, you know, the New York Knicks might have been gassed a little bit here, but boy, oh boy, that Spurs team was something. I mean, you got... You got young Tim Duncan just coming into the height of his powers. You got David Robinson, who was still at the, you know, wasn't necessarily the dominant MVP that he was in the beginning, but still very formidable. You had Avery Johnson. You had uh, Sean Elliott. And you had young Greg Pop, you know, who knew what he was doing and turning that team into, you know, one of, I always say the Patriots of basketball, man, just a, a model of consistency. And of course, they start the dynasty right when the Knicks had their one and only shot to finally win it all and, uh, you know, one of the longest droughts in New York sports history. And speaking of New York sports history, we're going to talk to a guy who's covered most of New York sports history, our good friend, Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post, who covered not just the Knicks, but almost all the New York sports teams around that time. So let's get into it. 
crazy. Yeah, and joining us on a special look back at the 1998-99 Knicks season is longtime New York Post sports columnist Mike Vaccaro. He's joining the show right now. Follow him on Twitter at Mike Vac. Mike, how you doing, buddy? You staying safe out there? I am, Kazim. I hope you are as well. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Been inside for a couple of days, going a little stir crazy. But <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about these Knicks, man. I know you were a columnist at the uh, in Jersey back then, and uh, you know this is the final team to go to the NBA Finals in Madison Square Garden. So take me inside that locker room, man. Like you've been in many Nick locker rooms over your career. What was the difference between this one? and the locker rooms of the present and past? Well, it was fantastic because, I mean, most of these guys had been through a lot of wars before. Patrick Ewing, obviously, even though he didn't play in the finals, uh, he was still the heart and soul of that team. It it was such a tough-minded, strong-willed team. You know, Latrell Sprewell didn't have a great regular season, but during the playoffs, he became one of the most popular Knicks I've ever seen. Allen Houston, the same thing. Marcus Camby just became a, a garden favorite and probably the most unlikely favorite at Madison Square Garden that spring was Jeff Van Gundy, who was kind of, you know, he would still kind of been almost an anonymous uh, uh, accidental coach, if you will, uh, heading into that year. When they made the playoffs, the Knicks started to secretly negotiate with Phil Jackson. And when that came out, Van Gundy kind of became the people's choice. And I can remember just how embarrassed he looked one night uh, when they were finishing off the Hawks one night during the playoffs. Uh, He's sipping his Diet Coke and just looked so embarrassed as the garden is just chanting his name. So, so many characters, so many great stories. Kurt Thomas was a great story. A guy in the middle of the finals kind of, you know, opened his his heart to a couple of us talking about how he'd uh, contemplated suicide several years earlier. And just, you know, most of those guys were like that. They were fun to watch, uh, very interesting to talk to uh it was a it was a great run you know every day there was something new to talk about something new to write about something new to discuss it was and of course the basketball itself was first rate also yeah it's almost like uh you know i know people listening to this podcast don't really remember a sports world where you literally only had the newspaper so the beat writers and the columnists was every look that you had into a team like this and to me it kind of always seemed like this team was like the land of misfit toys right like patrick Ewing was the age star Spreewell had his thing in Golden State and he was getting his second chance in uh, New York City you know you had you know Kurt Thomas who you just spoke about we have Chris Childs on the show uh, later today and Van Gundy who you know like we said now if you tell the New York Knicks faithful that you know Jeff Van Gundy was coming back to coach the team they'd probably be ecstatic but it wasn't always the case back then wasn't it no it wasn't in fact uh, you know there was a real debate that whole year uh, it, it was it was it was a lockout shortened year, and it wasn't until the last day of the year that the Knicks actually qualified for the playoffs. In fact, famously, the last the 50th game of the year at the Garden, they had to win, and 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 uh, they didn't uh, put the out of town scoreboard on the board because they wanted I guess they wanted everybody to be uh, focused on the game at hand. That included Van Gundy, I think it was his idea, uh, which also kind of tells you a little bit about the single mindedness of this team. But the uh, the leadership was what really kind of struck me, and Van Gundy obviously was a leader, but he also understood that he was wasn't going to get his message across unless guys like Patrick Ewing and Chris Childs and Larry Johnson bought in. And he got those guys to buy in. You know, it was a couple of weeks before the end of the season when basically Dave Checkett's the guy who was running the Knicks at the time, running the Garden, uh, made his choice and he fired Ernie Grunfeld at a time when Grunfeld thought they were going to discuss firing Van Gundy at a dinner in Westchester County. And uh, that didn't go well for, for Grunfeld. But uh, so Van Gundy won that power struggle. And then later on, when it, like I said, when it became known that the Knicks were talking to 
uh, Phil Jackson, even as their playoffs are going on. I mean, I don't think Red Holzman ever had his name chanted at Madison Square Garden, but Jeff Van Gundy sure did. That's that's legendary, man. Uh, and, and lastly, I just want to I just want you to take me back to being in the garden for uh, well, not being in the garden, but being in the locker room, I guess, for two of the most memorable shots in New York Knicks history. One, Allen Houston in Miami, floater in the lane, bouncing around to beat the Heat. And two, Larry Johnson's four point play against the Indiana Pacers. Take me back to those days and how you covered it when you were in there. Right. I mean, I, I remember being on the baseline at the old Miami. Arena uh, when the Knicks had the final possession against the, the, the Heat. It didn't look like they were going to get a good shot off. And frankly, you know, when you look at the shot Allen Houston took, it wasn't a great shot. Of course, Houston was a terrific shooter and he had incredible touch. And when you look at that that shot, the, the ball kind of rolls around the rim before it feels like five minutes before it goes in. And, and just the stunned disbelief in the arena that day. And uh, don't forget, that was kind of chapter three of what became kind of a four-chapter Knicks-Heat saga. Knicks lost that first one when, when all the players were out for uh, because of the fight back in 97, 97, 98, they stunned the Heat without Patrick, when Patrick was recovering from his wrist in the playoffs. And then in 99, the Heat were the number one seed. Now, it was the number one seed in the shortened season, but it was still a great upset. And the silence in that arena and the jubilation in the Knicks visiting locker room, you could literally hear it halfway around the arena. And one of the traditions for Pat Riley in those years was after he would lose, he would take one long lap around the arena to gather his thoughts before uh, walking into the uh, press conference. And I remember running into him as he was walking into the press conference and he just looked ashen and beaten and he was smoking a cigarette. And I've never seen a guy look more defeated, uh, which really contrasted the mood in the Knicks locker room. The, the Larry Johnson play is the loudest I've ever heard sports. It was the it, it was an amazing day at the Garden. They were going for it, it, it really in all of New York that day. Uh, the Mets fired half their pitching, half their coaching staff because they were in a losing streak. And they was during a Subway Series. There was a uh, there was a, a horse going for the Triple Crown at uh, Belmont Racetrack. And of course, the Knicks were playing the Pacers. Just had just discovered they were going to have to go on the playoffs without Patrick Ewing. So they played in a lot of emotion that day. They were down three in the in the closing seconds. Again, not really a great shot. Johnson gets the ball about 27 feet away from the basket he gets a, I guess I guess it was Antonio Davis that he got to uh, to uh, to kind of bite on a fake and there's still a question all these years later whether or not he really picked up a foul there but that's obviously the way it was called and the moment that ball went through the basket I, I swear I thought that the, the roof of the garden was going to come down because that's how loud it was I've never heard sports louder I've never heard fans respond that way before. And it's funny, um, you know, one of the great pictures of that moment, Johnson take, makes the shot, the place goes crazy. He runs to the other side of the court celebrating. And it was Chris Childs who ran over to him, basically hugged him, but said, hey, you got you to make this free throw. Because you, you make this free throw, we got to play overtime. And he made the free throw. They played terrific quintessential Knicks defense on the, uh, the, the the Pacers possession that followed. Reggie Miller got a shot off, but it was a bad shot. And uh, it really was as amazing a game as I've ever covered. In fact, I love watching that game because you can actually catch, if you know where to look, uh, back in those days, the press row was right behind the Knicks bench. Well, it was behind both benches, but the columnists were behind the Knicks bench. And uh, you can see me turning to Ian O'Connor, who was working at Gannett Westchester in those days. And the moment that ball goes through, the camera kind of pans to Van Gundy, but we see us in the background. And you, you see me just screaming at Ian, holy blank. <laughs> and that always, 
I've always described that as my ultimate holy blank moment covering sports. It really was remarkable to watch. Like it's it's a remarkable time as a Knicks fan. And now I have to go and YouTube that clip so I could find that photo of you saying holy blank. <laughs> <laughs> much, much less, a much less gray version. Uh, actually, probably a little bigger version of myself too. So. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on Big Apple Buckets, man. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Vack. Uh, we got Chris Childs coming up next on the show so he's going to talk to us a little bit about that moment as well mike stay safe and appreciate your time brother great talking to you Kazim. we'll talk to you soon thanks thanks for the kudos and joining us today on this special episode of big apple buckets is a member of that 1998-1999 nba finals new york knicks team in the lockout shortened season he helped lead these knicks in that backcourt to the NBA Finals, and he is returning to Big Apple Buckets for the second time this season. My guy, Chris Childs, man. How you doing, boss? Hey, I'm doing good, guys. I feel special, man. I get a, a redo or another chance at talking about uh, our, our great team that we had. Absolutely, man. I feel like right now, more than ever, you know, people just need good memories, good things, positive vibes to uh, look back on. And there's not a whole lot of positive vibes to look back on with the Knicks this season, but there definitely are some from that special 1998-1999 team. So, Chris, man, the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, just share with me some special memories with, uh, you know, Coach Van Gundy from that first team, man. I mean, you know, the, the lockout season uh, shortened the season a little bit, but uh, it, it's weird that we're kind of almost in a similar situation if the NBA season uh, will restart. So just talk to me a little bit about how, you know, this season was a little different since it was shortened by the lockout. Our season, I mean, it's, it's kind of backwards because they started, now they have to stop, and now they, they have to start again. So uh, we didn't start. We had to pick up the halfway point, basically try to get off to a good start, which we weren't able to do. But it was just a weird circumstances and season. We could have controlled this situation. You know, you can't control just things that occur. But it took us a long time to get started. Nobody knew what to expect, uh, how much time we were going to have, everything just all of a sudden just, okay, we got to hit the ground running. You know, we had new guys that we had to implement that, you know, come, I think Spree and those guys, it was their second year with us, not having a training camp set us back. Jeff, you know, being the, the coach that he, that he is and, you know, the motivator and, you know, he, he just told us, listen, what happens, happens. We can't control it. All we can do is control what we do out there on the floor. Yeah, he said that, but I don't think we fully understood what was ahead of us. You know, all we knew was that, okay, we don't have to worry about Chicago because I think Mike was gone. I'm thinking that. I can't speak to everybody else, but I'm thinking this is an opportunity for us to to, to make it. Uh, we got off to a horrible start. Horrible start. I think we are like maybe 6 and 13 or something like that. You know, the first 19 or 20 games. We were 8 games or 10 games back. We just had to dig down deep and, you know, the, the captains and all the, you know, veteran guys, uh, we policed ourselves. We didn't need Jeff or any of the coaches or the owners to get us motivated. We motivated ourselves to get us back into the thick of things. And I think the, uh, the last 15 games Games, we won 11 out of 15 or 12 out of 15 to make the playoffs. That's all we wanted to do was just to get in. Chris, what was the message going into the playoffs? Because you guys go in, and I believe you were the the last seed. You were four games over 500. What was Van Gundy's message to you guys? Like, you know, you're the underdogs, but we can take down these almighty heat. We can take down the almighty Pacers. What was his message? Well, we already knew those guys, and they knew us. Our, our mindset was just let's get in. Once we get in, that's a new season. Whether we was eighth seed, 
quick speed. It didn't matter. We matched up well against those two teams that were ahead of us. So we just wanted to get in and, you know, come to find out, you know, we ended up playing uh, Miami uh, one versus eight. And we were we were happy. We were like, okay, we, we beat these guys. We know how they play. We marry each other. Let's just go out there and do it. And you can just see the excitement in everybody's eyes going into that series that, oh, we, we can beat these guys. And then everything just came together. I think that I can't remember we had a meeting leading up into playing those guys. And I think the motto was, we don't care who, who does it as long as somebody does it. And that means we don't care who hits the last shot as long as we make the last shot or we take the last shot. And we play so unselfish. I can't remember. We were averaging like 25 to 30 assists a game because the ball was moving and popping. wasn't just holding with one person. Uh, everybody had equal opportunity to uh, score uh, off of a pass. And I think that was a, a difference maker in that series. Now, Chris, I know a lot of players that are, you know, hopefully going to back, going back to the season. We always hear about you know, how difficult it is to kind of pick back up in the middle of something. Do you think there was any benefits to a, to a shortened season? Like, how did it kind of help you guys when it came to uh, this this playoff run? I think with us, I mean, the benefit is, you know, you don't put the wear and tear on your body uh, for the 80-something uh, games, 115 with the uh, playoffs and making it to the finals. So, I mean, it's going to do wonders for them to rejuvenate their body. But also, when they do come back, you can also risk being injured because you started, now you stopped. Now you got to come back and try to play at a high level. And there's a risk of coming up with an injury, whether it's a hamstring, uh, ankle, or, you know, anything. You know, I wish nothing bad on these guys but to stop in the middle of the season when you put your body through so much leading up to it and now you have to pick back up I think there's a risk of uh, guys getting re-injured with us uh, it was the same thing you know but we didn't start so we were able to continue working out and building our bodies and getting ourselves mentally and physically stronger now we know we have these many games to play and we're good to go these guys started stopped now they have to pick up again it's going to be tough and the basketball, the first probably 10 to 15 games, won't be pretty. Who was the vocal leader in that locker room, Chris? I imagine it was Patrick, but was Houston involved free will? Who was the guy who said, you know what, guys, give me the ball, or you know what, you, you know, you'll make the next shot? Who was the guy that kind of inspired you guys to have the success you did? Well, Patrick, I mean, Patrick, you know, he, he was, the, you know, the leader because he wanted the ball. So, of course, he's going to say something. <laughs> but uh, Allen was real quiet. Uh, he knew that he was getting his number called. Spree, as, as people might have a misconceived notion about him being a rah-rah, he was real quiet, but fiery when he was on the court. Uh, if you want to vocal, was pretty much Jeff and, you know, Larry, uh, LJ, and myself. Uh, we were the ones in the huddle speaking on what we need to do or getting the ball to the right people, but you know, in the locker room, everybody had a voice, but not everybody used it. Jeff was one that, you know, did a lot of talking uh, in the locker room. Uh, I did a lot of talking, pointing things out, you know, being a point guard. And LJ did a lot of talking as far as making sure guys were um, responsible for uh, the job in hand, whether you were setting a pig, whether you was a rebounder, whether you was a guy to take a charge. Uh, those those things were always uh, implemented by you know, myself and LJ. So let's talk about one of the most memorable moments of that playoff run. We got Allen Houston, the floater in the lane, bouncing around in Miami to win that deciding game to go into the next round of the playoffs. Talk to me about that. Wasn't that like a, a similar shot that uh, Kawhi hit against Philly? Basically, right? Like that thing, that thing yeah. hung on the rim for at least 
what seemed like two hours. <laughs> right, but I've seen I've seen Allen shoot that little floater a thousand times. I mean, whether he was practicing it or whether it's in the game or we were playing one on one, I've seen that shot a thousand times, and it's just so crazy that he came against Miami in that series, and that thing hit. You can just you can just scan and see the the, the fans. Everybody were on the edge of their seats, and our events, their events, guys on the on the court, everybody was just like like a paw. And once that thing dropped in, man, we we felt so good. Allen ran down to our bench, and you know we got excited. We knew that we were moving on, and it was, it's it's no better feeling than a shot like that going in, but especially to beat a team like the Miami Heat. Yeah, man, because it felt like it was a, it was a murderer's row of you guys' rivals throughout that season. And, you know, into the next round, you know, you guys went up against, well, in the conference finals, mind you, you went up against the Indiana Pacers. And we all know the history with the Knicks and the Pacers and Reggie Miller getting the best of you guys. But, you know, LJ's four-point play, another play you were on the court for, man. Talk to me about that one right there. I must be a good luck charm. They need to bring (laughs) me back this year. Well, yeah. Yeah, but that's like I said, that play wasn't designed for Elgin. Well, who's it the play was, designed uh, for? What was, what was I think it was designed for Allen because we, we we run a play called a triangle where two guys come off and the big guy goes down the screen and Allen comes up, Allen or Spree, and then LJ flashes back to the ball. So he LJ was probably like the third option or fourth option. And so they denied Allen or Spree. I can't remember exactly which one of those guys it was, but they denied him. Then they denied the pass to the corner. And so LJ flashed to the ball and uh, got the ball to him and you know, I don't know, I think it was Antonio Davis was guarding him. I can't believe he, you know, bit on the, the, the you know, LJ, the, the rocker step, and he went one way, LJ went the other way, and he did reach in. It was an and one. He did reach in. I've watched it over and over, and they show it on ESPN because I ended up playing with Antonio in Toronto. We had many conversations about that, but he did follow him. You know, I have the picture in my house, LJ knocking it down and the fans going crazy. But being a point guard, I knew time and clock. I'm like, look, that's just a tie. So I had to calm uh, LJ down because I knew he was getting ready to do the L with his fist and get all hyped with the fans. And so uh, I had to calm him down. And being the person and the player that it, that LJ is and what we've experienced together, I'm able to say things to him that I probably wouldn't say to other players because certain players are sensitive to certain things. I was watching that highlight, Chris, last night because, of course, it's the quarantine. What else do we have to do except watch highlights from 20 right. years ago and the rest of our lives are bored out of our minds here? But, uh, you know, you I remember that. You calmed him down. I thought it was Charlie Ward there too, but you guys said, hey, 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 like because he was ready to celebrate because the roof was lit off that place. And then, I don't know about you, Larry looked insanely nervous trying to make that free throw. It felt like he willed it in. I don't know if that was his normal form, but I just felt like he willed that shot in to win that game because – I, I had never seen him look that nervous until that free throw. Well, it was it was a big moment. But me going up to him, I said, hey, game is tied. We, now we need to hit the free throw. Just go up there to the line like you're in your backyard shooting by yourself. And so I saw the, the calmness on his face. Now, I was behind him when he was shooting the free throw, so I don't know what he looked like from in front. But he's always had that pause at the top of his release, always. That's been his M.O. back since when he was at UNLV. I don't care if it rolled around 70, 75 times. It went in, 
And if he willed it in, he willed in the three-point shot. So why not will in the free throw? All I know is that that moment will be sketched in my mind for the rest of my life. And that's why I was able to get uh, capture that picture and uh, put it in my house for everyone to see. And hopefully, you know, be being, me being in Florida, I'll get a couple of money he can to come by and get reminded of what happened or Indiana. Now, Chris, obviously that next uh, series was extremely difficult going up against the San Antonio Spurs, Tim Duncan, David Robinson. How tough was that team and how tough was a second year Tim Duncan just kind of having a virtuoso performance against you guys? Yeah, we we were, uh, you know, we were outmatched. You know, guys were banged up, hurt, which everybody is during the, during the NBA Finals, so there's no excuse, but they were playing volleyball, you know. If we, you know, LJ was not well at all. Uh, Patrick wasn't there, and so we know with Kurt and Martin's having to go up against those guys. You know, one guy might have to guard Tim, and then David would get the offensive rebound, and then they would kick it back out, hit threes. You know, they had Jared Jackson and Sean and all those guys. So we were just outmatched at the time. We were injured. And kudos to those guys because they're a well-coached, well-ran team. Avery ran the ball club extremely well, got the ball to the necessary guys. And so it was just a all-around good team, and we were just outmatched. Now, Chris, man, it, it, the, that team, you know, there's absolutely no shame in losing to that Spurs team because they went on to be one of the greatest franchises in uh, NBA history. But, you know, just as you guys are one of the most memorable teams in Knicks history, does it have any sort of solace to you about being that team that kind of kickstarted the dynasty for the Spurs and being the last New York Knicks team to go to the NBA Finals? Well, I'll answer the second question first. To be able to make it back after that drought, to make it back, you know, in 99 and, and get an opportunity for the fans to see their beloved Knicks back in the finals was, was just, you know, awesome dream come true. Everybody that's ever played the game would have loved to, to be in the position that we were. I don't really take solace in losing. I don't care if I'm playing checkers or chess or anything, but I, I don't like it. But to go up against that franchise and see the success that they had and to bring in the the quality players going from Avery Johnson at point guard to Tony Parker to Manu to Bruce and to continue with the success says a lot about that franchise. So uh, being a, a, a ex-player and being a fan of the game, that was enjoyable to watch because there's nothing like watching a basketball team play the game the right way and be successful. Being unselfish, it's not about individual steps because the ultimate goal is to win. And so to watch those guys play the way they played was enjoyable to watch. To watch the, the uh, Warriors play the way they play is a joy to watch because it's very unselfish. We get caught up in individual stats too much. You know, all the great players are remembered because they won championships, not because they won scoring titles, because they won NBA titles. So watching those guys take pride in their craft and watch Pop coach the best player the same way as the player that that's the 12th man or the guy that's on IR. That's enjoyable to watch, and that's what the NBA is missing. Chris Childs, thank you so much for coming back to Big Apple Buckets. When you know what they say, once a Nick, always a Nick. I'm going to say once a guest on Big Apple Buckets, always a guest on Big Apple Buckets. So you're welcome to come back anytime when this thing calms down, man. Stay safe and then, uh, you know, take care of yourself and your family, brother. Hey, you got it, guys, and thanks again for having me on. I'm a I'm a Nick till I die, even through the hard times right now. I always support them, and I'm going to continue to support them. 
You guys be careful out there. Be safe. Take care of your family. Practice social distance because this thing is not getting better right away unless we personally do what we need to do to keep our families and everybody else at bay. You guys stay safe and thanks again. And that's a wrap for this episode of Big Apple Buckets with the New York Post. Shout out to our producer, Jake Brown, for producing the show all season long. Hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Rate us five stars. Write us a nice review while you're at it because, you know, we like compliments here. And thanks for tuning in all season since October to Big Apple Buckets. Please, everybody, stay safe out there. And we'll talk to you next time. Peace.